Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hell of a game last night. Great game last night. Phoenix had every chance to win that game, return home up three games to one, and then choke Milwaukee out, except Milwaukee battled its ass off and was going to make sure that did not happen. I mean, there is so much to talk about from last night's game. Devin Booker got right, hit some huge shots. Bobby Portis electrifying Bucks fans yet again. Pat Connaughton hitting a huge three. And then you have Chris Paul picking a really bad night to have a really bad night. But really, last night was about two moments, and two moments only. The two moments were so big, they even overshadowed Chris Middleton going for 40. And how big was he last night? Those two moments even overshadowed Book going for 42. And you know the moments I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Giannis moments. The one in the first quarter, and then the one in the fourth quarter. The one in the first quarter was when he subbed out just three and a half minutes into the game. All right, kind of weird. I'll admit that. Kind of weird. Even more weird when you consider it was exactly the same time that he checked out in game three. So like, what's going on here? What was that about? Was it the injury? Was it the knee? Was it a tape job? Was the guy too amped up? Did he need a quick blow? And worst of all, there was some suggesting that, you know what? Maybe the moment is just too big for the two-time MVP. Because that's what the hot takers and Lava Nation were going with last night. Nope, 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 nope. None of that. It was something totally different. Giannis, this was the second game in a row you went out early in the first quarter. I'm just curious what was going on there. I wanted to, uh, what the hell you guys say politely, I wanted to take a, a tinkle. A, a tinkle? Yeah, yeah. I went to take a tinkle and came back. Yeah. That's it. That's is that's polite, right? Tinkle is polite. Yeah. Both games. I went to take a tinkle and went back. This dude, man. This dude's so great. He's like, I. What the hell do you guys call it? A tinkle. Not. I had to go relieve myself. Not. I had to hit the head. Not. I had to take a leak. Not even, I got to take a piss. None of that. Just a grown-ass man and a two-time MVP telling everybody he had to take a tinkle. Normally, you take a statement like that, especially if it's given as an excuse for coming out of a critical game in the NBA Finals. And you would just take that and you'd swat it into the 10th row. And talk about how totally awkward and cringy it is. And why is an alleged badass and grown-ass man talking about tinkling? Normally, I would say that. But the thing about Giannis is he's such an amazing dude. You know, player aside, he's such a great dude. I'm actually fine with it. I mean, if it's Giannis, if it's not, you really are talking about, man, that is one of the lamest, cringiest, most awkward things an awkward adult could say. But this guy, I don't know, because it's Giannis, he makes it sound almost endearing or something. I wanted to, uh, what the hell you guys say politely, I wanted to take a, a tinkle. A, a tinkle? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to take a tinkle and came back. Yeah. That's, that's, that's polite, right? Tinkle is polite, yeah. That is polite, Giannis. Both games. 
I want to take a tinkle and went back. It was polite both games. Hey, look, I can't lie. I'd rather he said I had to take a leak. But I'm not that put off that he had to take a tinkle. Now we can get away from all that bull crap about how maybe the moment is too big for this guy. Because that's not straight fire. That's just straight garbage. Garbage! And then, of course, you've got the other moment from last night. The other moment that mattered is this. I don't really need to even introduce it. I don't need to describe it. I don't need to set the context for it. You already know where I'm going with this. If you saw that game, you know what I'm talking about. And if you know, you know. So, Alvy, go ahead and send it. Now Booker with Tucker on him. Throws it up for Aiden. Shot blocked by Antetokounmpo. What a block from Giannis. I'm telling you, that's more mind-bending right there than the two-time MVP talking about tinkling in a presser. Like, I fancy myself a pretty good wordsmith. I feel pretty good about my vocabulary. But even I'm having a hard time trying to find the best word to describe that play, that block. A tough time describing how insane it was that Giannis was able to recover and make that block in that moment on that stage. You know, like words like stunning, astonishing, astounding, incredible, epic, phenomenal, badass, tinkle. They don't even do it justice. Right? As many times as I've watched that replay, it's still not enough. Give me the slow-mo. Give me the phantom cam. Let me even see that in 8K. Or give me still versions. Still photos. Because every single version is better and more insane than the last. And I mean, an absolutely incredible play. Let's start with the time in the game. The Bucks are up two. 75 seconds left. If DeAndre Ayton throws down that dunk, that game's tied, and the Suns have a really good chance to rip that game on the road. They win that game, if they do, and then they go back home with a chance to wrap this thing up in Game 5. Yeah, right. Not on Giannis's watch. That was not going to happen. He didn't just save the game. He kept their season alive. He made one of the most amazing plays in postseason history. Not hyperbole either. I'm not embellishing that. That was one of the great all-time plays in postseason history. One of the most important plays in the history of that franchise. Now, depending on how this now best-of-three series plays out, that is some legacy bleep right there for Giannis. If they're ultimately fitted for rings, that play, as much as any other, is going to be the reason regardless of what happens going forward. So, that's the zoomed-out look at that block. But if you zoom in on the actual play itself, it becomes even more incredible. For instance, he's stepping up to stop Devin Booker's drive and to force the pass. When the ball leaves Booker's hands, Giannis is beaten. He knew it. You know, just a hustle play. I thought I'm going to get dunked on, to be honest with you. A hustle play. I thought that I was going to get dunked on, to be honest with you. And the guy's right. Because nearly every person who's ever put on basketball shoes gets dunked on in that moment. And it goes horribly. They take a step and then they turn just in time to see Aiden elevating past and over them and throwing it down. Except Giannis. Not last night. This guy recovers and not only was able to contest the shot, because just contesting it would have been an amazing moment, but... He made the play. Like, if you foul him, that's understandable. You can't give up a dunk, a free dunk in the final two minutes of a finals game, but Giannis didn't foul him. DeAndre Ayton catches the lob around the top of the box on the glass, and Giannis still managed to block that dunk perfectly. 
That's why he's the defensive player of the year. Not because he's a lockdown, one-on-one defender on the perimeter, but because he can do things like that. And the list of guys that can do things like that right now is really, really short. The skill, the body control, the intelligence, the basketball IQ, IQ, all of it. IQ, perform? Oh, and he's doing it after playing more than 40 minutes. And let me remind you all, he's doing it on a jacked up leg. So how the hell is that even possible? How is any of this possible? I still can't make sense of it. I can't get my head wrapped around how this guy is doing things like that after he put that knee on backwards, only a few weeks back. The mental, the physical toughness this guy has shown since that knee injury really is unreal. So, is his game perfect? No, it's not. But in the last three games of the series, this guy's been an absolute force. And it's been a pretty amazing thing to witness. And that's not just me now. That's not just me going on and losing my mind about that dunk. Check out at Andre. Quote, that Giannis block was crazy. At King James-esque. At Andre, thumb that out. Andre Iguodala, if you need him. And to me, that's one of the cooler tweets you'll ever see because he was on the wrong end of that other famous block in finals history. The LeBron chase down block. And if he's putting this one up there with that, that's the highest praise you can get. And if the Bucks do win this series, it's going right next to LeBron for the biggest block in NBA finals history. Pat Connaughton said that he was so shocked he forgot to even play for a moment. The honest thought that was going through my head was more or less kind of like shock and awe. I think, you know, when the block happened, I kind of looked like, and luckily PJ came across the lane and grabbed the rebound because I forgot for a split second to go grab it. I mean, this is a teammate talking about he was in shock and awe. This is a teammate saying, I stopped just to watch. Pretty amazing. Chris Middleton put it this way. I say excuse my language, but it was one of those oh moments. Uh-huh. Again, we're talking about a guy who went off for 40. And even he said that was one of those oh bleep moments. I say excuse my language, but it was one of those oh moments. Right? Uh-huh. It was. So the unknown came in 2020, and it changed the workplace forever. We know that. While some of us are getting back to the office, some of us find ourselves in a new normal at home. The future of work has changed, and so is the future of seating. X-Chair is at the forefront of home and office seating during this transition. And now X-Chair's newest innovation, LMAX Temperature Regulation, will take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling, heat, and massage in your low back. Are you kidding me about the X chair? This thing is incredible. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. It's crazy. If it sounds like I'm hyped on the X chair, it's because I am. What you need to do is go to xchairrome.com. xchairrome.com. That's the letter X chairrome.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR and save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchair.com right now and use code XWHEELS for free X-WHEEL blade casters. xchairrome.com. Martin Jarmond is my guest. Martin, good to have you back. How are you? Yeah, how you doing, brother? 
Good, good, dude. How about you? In fact, let me put it to you another way, Martin. The last 14 months since you were named AD have been really, really interesting. So from the time that we last spoke, what's your first year on the job been like? It's been chaotic and uh, crazy, but fun at the same time, man. It's been a roller coaster ride in college athletics, for sure. And things are changing really quickly, and I'll get into that in a minute. But you and the program have accomplished so many things over the past year. I've got to pick my spots here. So let me start with basketball. When you look back on the basketball season and that trip to the Final Four, what kind of thoughts do you have? Man, that was so electric. Uh, that basketball run, I think it resonated with, with Bruin Nation. But, but bigger than that, just people all across the globe. Uh, I think that team's resilience and toughness, the way they played and came together, it really, um, it really ignited everybody. I mean, we're going through this pandemic, going through this challenging time, and to have a team like that that embodies that toughness, that grit, it was just, it was just amazing. It was a great run, a, a great story, and uh, I'm just happy that, that uh, UCLA was able to bring uh, – over 36 million eyeballs on some of those games is uh, impressive. You're so right. I agree with everything you just said. It was a great run. It was a great story. And then you've got a great head coach, Martin, to me, and Mick Cronin, one of my favorite guys to talk to. I love the way that he's approached everything since he arrived in Westwood. So what's it been like to work with him, and what do you make of the culture that he and the players have built? Mick is phenomenal. He does not get enough credit, uh, not only for his basketball acumen, but just his leadership of, of program. Um, he, he loves the guys, but yet he's hard on the guys. And it's rare with coaches. Some of the best ones are ones that can demand and push the most and the best out of the guys, but also love them up and, and build them up. And he does a great job of both. Um, I love working with him. Uh, he, he's a funny guy, you know. I mean, you, you get to see his personality, but, you know, uh, he's just been a, a, a great guy to just get to know and, and work through and, and we've had some things where we're both on the same page, and that's alignment is big at our at our level. You know, you got to be locked in together. You know, you got to both be in the foxhole. And the thing that I can say about Mick is, you know, he gets it. He's he's not just a coach; he's a leader. He's an administrator. He understands my perspective. He understands perspective from fans, and um, and he's just a beauty to work with. He's a gem, and we're glad we have him. I love that. Martin Jarman is joining us. So what's it say then about the program and the culture that guys that could have gone to the NBA and often would are coming back again for next season? How about that? I mean, we've, we've got everybody coming back, but that's just a testament to what, what Mick and the coaching staff have created. I mean, they've got a level of toughness, a level of togetherness. Uh, you can tell when you watch those guys, they really enjoy playing with each other. And then even off the court, you can tell that they just they spend time and they love each other. And so that's, that's a credit to Mick and what he's done. And, and we've got something special in Westwood. I mean, for all those guys to come back and want to do something special this upcoming year, um, you know it's going to be rocking in Pauley Pavilion, brother. Oh, no doubt. So you and I are talking about the basketball program, but there's so much more to your job, Martin. For instance, as people know, last year Under Armour pulled out of its deal with the school – then you negotiated a new deal with Nike and Jordan brand, becoming the first football program on the West Coast to partner with Jordan. So what was it like when Under Armour pulled out, and then how did you go about brokering that new deal? <laughs> well, it wasn't good, and it was unexpected. But mm -hmm. um, I can tell you we're right where we need to be. Uh, Nike and Jordan brand is the best. you know. And, and we have a word here, elite, that we use at UCLA. And energy, leadership, integrity, toughness, excellence. We're elite. We're the best. 
We have 119 national championships, second most in the country. We deserve the best, and Nike is the best, and Jordan Brand is the best. I mean, who wouldn't want to be aligned with MJ? I mean, his greatness and what he represents and what that company represents, to me, it's, it's almost two-story programs coming together at the right time. So I'm, I'm just fortunate that, that we were able to, uh, to recover. And I think, Jim, truth be told, uh, when it's all said and done, we're going to be much better being with, with Nike and Jordan brand than, than anybody else. And is that how things happen sometimes, right? Like when it happens, it seems like it's the worst thing ever, but then in time you find out it's actually a really good thing. So now the challenge also, Martin, is you're dealing with things like changing changes involving name and likeness and image. How are you approaching that process, and what's that part of it been like so far? You know, it's been great. You know, I was one of the big proponents, and especially UCLA, and, and we're leaders in this space. You know, we're well-positioned to be a leader and provide student-athletes that environment to maximize their opportunities, do their thing. You know, my, my biggest thing is student-athletes should have been able to do this, and, and we should be able to help them educate so that they can maximize and take advantage. I mean, this is a prime time for them. And I can tell you, we're two weeks in the name, image, and likeness. Uh, we've already got 17 deals done with our student-athletes. Um, a couple of them have already started. Two of them started clothing brands. A couple of them have started YouTube channels, um, uh, memorabilia companies. And a lot of our student-athletes, Jim, are actually starting to hire representation. And so to me, that's, that's what it's about. You come to college to learn to be a professional. And so when you can learn and about tax implications, about your brand, about what it takes to build up your, your brand, your persona, you know, that's what it's about. And, and I think at UCLA, we're, we're positioned well here in Westwood and L.A. and the West Coast and, uh, to really help our student-athletes. But it's a, it's a new day. You know, it's a new day, and I'm happy about it. We're excited about it. And uh, there's more changes to come. It's absolutely more changes to come. But this has been a great thing. Martin Jarman is joining us. He's the AD at UCLA. I agree. It probably should have happened sooner, and it's going to be even more changes. You had a conversation, Martin, with a guy that I think really highly of, the great Bill Roden, and you spoke to him earlier this year, and you told him that shortly after you were hired, a famous former UCLA basketball player called you and said, quote, you're coming to my alma mater. I'm going to root for you. I don't know you, but I need you to be successful because if you're not successful, nobody at UCLA Black is going to get a leadership position. End of quote. How would you describe what it feels like to hear something like that and to know that and that there's responsibility that comes along with that perhaps? Yeah, to whom much is given, much is expected. And, you know, no one's going to be harder on me than myself. So I, I try not to worry about what people think outside of, of my expectations for myself. You know, I'm aware of, of the history. Unfortunately, uh, we don't always get opportunities, minorities. Uh, we don't always get opportunities that we should. And, and that's something that has, is getting better, but we've got to keep working on that. But, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a reality. You know, I, that's, that's just the way it is. And I understood, I understood that. I understand that. Um, but at the same time, I expect a lot out of myself, and I just do the best that I can. And I understand the responsibility of being the, the first African-American AD here. I understand the legacy and tradition that UCLA carries when it comes to trailblazers and minorities, whether it's Kareem, whether it's Jackie Robinson, Ann Myers Drysdale, uh, Arthur Ashe. I mean, that's just the legacy of being a Bruin. And I embrace that. I understand that. And my job is to play a small role in helping us move forward and Hopefully, if I do a 
a, a good enough job that I can make it a little easier for those that look like me that are coming behind me. I appreciate that. I also appreciate the reference to Ann Myers-Drysdale. I've not spoken to her in several years, but back in the day when I came up on TV, I used to interview her. She was awesome. Just, I mean, just great. So <laughs> dynamic and such great energy. She's great. You know, I talked to her. She, she texted me. Annie is, is phenomenal. I mean, and just people don't understand. I mean, she is she's the GOAT women's basketball. I mean, just her legacy and what she has done for women's basketball. And, I mean, and, you know, she's just a great person. So I, I love Annie. She's, she's been She's been really good to me. Yeah, I'm really really glad to hear that and not at all surprised. She is awesome. So before you go, it's things are challenging enough in dealing with a pandemic and dealing with the changes in the sport, but let's not forget about life. And I'm sorry to say this, but your mother passed away last year, and I'm sorry for your loss there, but how would you describe your mom as a person and the impact she had on you and everybody around her? Oh, Jim, uh, my mom, Virginia Jarman, uh, she was the best, and I appreciate you uh, saying that next next week actually is the one year anniversary mm-hmm. of her passing, and uh, you know she was the hardest worker I knew. She was loving, uh, she was exceptional, and she pushed me. You know she pushed me. She made people around her better, and uh, I can't say enough about um, what my mom meant to other people, and. You know, she was quiet, but she had a quiet resolve and a, and a toughness to her and a grit that uh, I try to embody. Um, again, you know, she, I could, I could tell you stories that we don't have enough time for, but the woman that she was, um, she was tough, and, and she represented so much of what's good about humans and people and empathy and toughness and leadership, and so... Uh, she she was just she was my rock and I, I miss her every day and and um, you know I just try to do the best I can to make sure that that her legacy is uh, is strong. I appreciate your thoughts on that, especially maybe a quick follow, Martin. For instance, you know we're talking about a situation where you had taken a new job, you moved across the country in the middle of a pandemic, and then you lose your mother. At one point, you tweeted, and I love this quote: "You never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have." So I'm kind of curious, even as somebody in your leadership position, what have you learned about yourself in this process? Wow. Um, That we can handle more than we think, and you can't do it alone. You know, you have to have people around you. You have to be vulnerable. You have to share. And uh, you can't do it all yourself. But you're tougher than what you think. And I know uh, what I've learned about myself is um, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to face it. And I'm going to fight it, and I'm going to push it, and uh, and then at the end of the day, you know, that's all we can do is do your best and let God handle the rest. And so um, that was a that was a challenging time, but uh, until you're in the fire, until you're in the arena, uh, you don't know what you're capable of, but you got to believe in yourself and you got to bet on yourself. I think that is such a good response and a really, really important response. He is the director of athletics at UCLA. He was named AD back in May of 2020. And the ninth AD in school history, Martin Jarman, my guest. My man, I appreciate you. Great to have you back on the show. And instead of saying, I hope we'll do it again soon, I know we will. Jim, absolutely, man. Loved your show. Loved listening to you, brother. Keep doing it. And I appreciate you having me on. So recently I was trying to figure out what to give my wife Janet as a gift. You have to understand she wants nothing. Ever, 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 ever. Wants nothing, needs nothing. Ever. So she's impossible to shop for. But then I discovered paintyourlife.com. Because the thing that is most important to her is family. And it's hard to get family together 
all at once. We have a son in college now. Everybody's going different directions. But I want to find a way to bring us all together safely. So when I heard that we could do that at PaintYourLife.com, I thought, man, that is an amazing idea. What I'm talking about here is a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. You choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. I'm telling you, then you get it and you're absolutely blown away by it. And for me and my family, you literally cannot put a price tag on this. There is nothing, there's no store that I can walk into that would mean more to my wife than this. And at PaintYourLife.com, there is no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word ROME, R-O-M-E, to 64000. That's ROME, R-O-M-E, to 64000. Again, text ROME to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com slash terms. Once again, text Rome to 64,000. So you want to know who the most relieved people on the planet were when Giannis did reject DeAndre Ayton at the rim? Not his teammates. Not the exceptional Bucks fans who are feeling it. No, as always, the most relieved people of all were the refs and the NBA. Because if Giannis does not pull off that amazing recovery block, and the Bucks actually go on and they lose that game, the only thing we would be talking about today would be the refereeing last night and how bad it was once again. I know Twitter is not the best barometer for anything, but every time a whistle went last night, my Twitter feed exploded with people losing their minds over the call. And by the way, I don't follow a lot of Bucks fans or Suns fans. I'm talking about neutrals who are freaking out, people who don't have a dog in the fight unless they were gambling. And they were freaking out about plays such as this. Ball turned over. Giannis down the center of the floor. Holiday driving back to Giannis. Up good. Cannot believe that Holiday wasn't fouled. Wow. How is that not a foul on Booker? It would have been his sixth. Goodness. Uh, That was a blatant miss. Bucks radio. Listen, I understand that being an NBA ref is hard. It might be one of the toughest gigs in all of sports because the players are so big, they're so fast, and they're so skilled at drawing fouls. And as much as this season has been a grind for the players, I'm telling you, it is a grueling slog for the referees as well. I get that. I understand that. Tough gig. Tough gig. And I'm not even defending or demanding perfection. The human element should be a part of the game. I don't want that gig. That's a hard gig. Having said all that, there is no way in hell that Devin Booker did not commit a foul there. Now, I know you don't want to call a sixth foul on a superstar that people are throwing down four tickets and they want to tune in and they want to see the best players in the biggest moments. I get that. So I get the argument that you can't call a sixth foul on a superstar unless it's blatant. I get that too. But that was blatant as hell. That's as blatant as it gets. And yeah, I know that wasn't exactly a Rick Mahorn foul. I know that wasn't Kevin McHale hitting Kurt Rambis back in the day with that clothesline. But that was a full-on bear hug in midair. And not a single whistle at all. Nothing. As a famous caller once said, that's a foul. Ah! 
That's a foul. That's a foul. That's a foul. And you know what's even worse to me? Not only was that not a foul, apparently, to them, but that came in the same game where there were lots of touch fouls that were called. As always, man, even if you want to make the argument that the postseason is officiated differently than the regular season, at least be consistent within game. I mean, there were calls, there were plays that I thought P.J. Tucker's head might explode after some of the calls went against him. After the game, Dave McManaman asked crew chief, J- crew chief James Capers about the play, and this is what Capers dropped on him, and I quote, During live play, I saw a clean sweep of the ball, and I thought it was a no call. However, after seeing the replay, I now realize that I missed Booker's right arm around the waist of Holiday, and it should have been a defensive foul on the play. End quote. Yo, Capers, my friend, I'm not sure what angle you had on that play, but I'm not sure that an angle exists where there was, quote, a clean sweep of the ball. And also, by the way, no credit for holding your hand up afterwards and saying, yeah, 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 that was a foul. Yeah, yeah, that's a foul. I admit it. Everybody in the building already knew that was a foul. Excuse me. You don't even need to own that at that point. We all knew. Goodness. The, the one guy who had to know was the only guy who didn't know. Again, I understand that refing is hard. It's really hard. Guys are going to miss calls. But if this crew is calling touch fouls on jumpers, they sure as hell can't be swallowing the whistle when Booker is wrapping up Drew Holiday midair. And yes, again, it would have meant that Booker fouled out. And nobody wants to see a guy that electric on the bench for the final three-plus minutes of a finals game. But make the bleeping call. You have to make that call. Fortunately for the refs, they got bailed out. Giannis follows up the no call with a bucket. The damage was limited. And fortunately for the refs, he followed that up with a once-in-a-lifetime block. So, they better drop him a thank you note because that block not only erased DeAndre Ayton's dunk, it also erased their crappy night. Speaking of crappy nights... Did anybody hear from Chris Paul last night? I mean, it was not that long ago that we were all going on and on about the point god and how amazing this is that the point god is doing point god things at age 36, that he was finally going to get his own. You know, all those beautiful, flowery pieces written about this guy. Yeah, now what? This is how fast this changes. Now, the good news is, as he's come off the rails, he can get right, right quick. But... The point God had a couple of really bad moments last night, like that turnover that set up the holiday and the non-call. Chris Paul on the drive. Paul kicks it back out. Pass deflected and stolen. Three on one for the Bucks. Listen, if that guy, the point God per se, is not taking care of the rock, they have no shot. And last night he was not taking care of the rock. Another brutal turnover in the final minute. Chris Paul falls down and lost the ball. And you've got numbers right now if you're the Bucks. Huge moment last night. Falls down, turns it over, goes back the other way. Four-point swing. So that was a really bad time to have a really bad time. Who had a worse night, Paul or the refs? Because it wasn't just the two turnovers. He had five on the night, which as many as the entire Bucks team had on the night. 
And he didn't make up for it in other ways either. He had 10 points. He had seven assists. Fine numbers for most guys, but way down from his playoff averages of 19 and nearly 9. You don't get glossed the point god for those numbers. Listen, I, and I get this, Suns fan. I also get there's no way the Suns are even here without him. But here's something else I get. They're not going to finish this thing off if this guy continues to play the way he is right now. The Suns hit 51.3% from the field last night. They held the Bucks to just over 40%. If you saw those numbers before that game and you knew that Booker went off for more than 40, you would be thinking blowout for the Suns. But they had 17 turnovers to Milwaukee's five, and Paul was a big part of that. It was me. I had five of them. You know what I mean? It was bad decision-making. They right. got you know, a significant amount uh, more shots than us. And so, you know, for me, I got to take care of the ball. We, we got 17 turnovers. We shoot the ball too well not to have those opportunities to score. Weird thing to me. One of the best ever at taking care of the ball is not doing a good job at taking care of the ball. Because he's right. If they cut down the turnovers, they win that game. Just crazy to see a guy as good as he is, who's worked as hard as he has, to finally get to the finals, get off to a great start, and then suddenly implode. In the finals. Some of that's on Holiday. Some of that's on the Bucks defense. But a lot of that is on Paul himself and his bad decisions the last couple of games. And let me double check something really quickly. Let's see. James Capers. David Guthrie. Courtney Kirkland. All right. All right. The refs were bad. But CP cannot blame Scott Foster for that one. As good as CP has been in the playoffs... Last night, my man looked like Smush Parker out there. I got a crazy theory. Crazy theory. You know that I believe in karma, especially jungle karma. But there's other types of karma that's flying around. Seems to me, and I can't prove it, obviously. There's no empirical evidence to suggest it. It just seems to me, if you punch enough nuts in your career... Some things are going to come back to you. And they're going to come back at you at the worst possible time because, one, ball don't lie. And two, basketball gods have a funny way of working, don't they? A ball don't lie. Neither do that nad punch. Look, I'm not saying that this is all payback for all those nuts that did get punched. But if the Bucks win this whole thing, That's going to be one of the first things that I point to. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business and be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak to a Dell Technologies advisor today. He is Kenyon Drake. Kenyon, great to have you on. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you on. So, first things first, how does it feel to be a Raider and to rock the silver and black? It feels good, man. I feel like uh, the silver and black uh, really looks good on me, so I definitely can't complain about that, first and foremost. But um, Coach Gruden, uh, we had a great pitch for me to come out there and Uh, be a versatile playmaker for the team, and I felt like it was something that I definitely wanted to be a part of. 
My man, you got me right to my next question. I was going to say, what about that pitch? Like when you were looking around in free agency, you had options. What were the types of things that you were looking for and what made you feel like Vegas was the right place? Um, I just wanted to kind of be in a situation where I knew that I could use my skill set to, I guess, a maximum in a sense. Um, uh, I feel like from when I was in Miami, I was kind of mostly a third down back. Got to Arizona mostly first and second down back, and I feel like now this in this point in my career, um, it's kind of come full circle to where I can kind of be used in a multi multifaceted uh, part of the game, and uh, my versatility will kind of speak for itself in that in that standpoint. Gruden kind of let me know that that's you know what he intended to do, put me out of space and just be a dynamic uh, weapon. Kenyon Drake joining us. That makes sense to me. Here's something I find very interesting, though. Going to the Raiders, of course, means that you're going to be in the same backfield as Josh Jacobs. Now, there's a lot of guys in your position who might not want to do that because they might be concerned about their role and their touches. That obviously did not bother you, right? So what was your thought process regarding that? Yeah, I felt like or feel like in this league you have to have a just a multitude of playmakers, especially at the running back position, um, you know, in this day and age. And um, I just feel like we also can kind of just play off each other. Um, you know, he can go in and, you know, get the tough yards. I can get the tough yards. Uh, he can be a dynamic playmaker out um, in space, me as well. And uh, we can just kind of feed off each other's energy. Um, he's a, uh, I love watching him play. He has a great uh, ability of making plays and, and tough situations and also in space. And, um, you know, we'll kind of just feed off each other's energy and um, keep each other fresh as the season continues to go on, especially with uh, an extra game this year. Uh, so I feel like it just works, you know, best in both of our favors. In fact, I would even say to you that it's very clear how much you think of him, but he returned that same respect. He said, quote, man, I've known Kenyon forever since Alabama days. He used to come back and train with me all the time. His game speaks for itself. He's very versatile. He can play inside. He's very good in open space. He can take the top off, so he's going to be a great addition, end quote. He had that to say about you. Let me get your reaction to that praise, and do you think that you two together are going to make up one of the best backfields in the NFL? Yeah, my, I definitely uh, have the same, if not more, respect for his game. Just watching him from um, when he was uh, playing at Bama, uh, he just always seemed to be moving at a different speed, and especially at the point of contact, he was never shot or, um, you know, beat a hammer, not the nail, as our running back coach, uh, Burton Burns, used to say back at Bama. Um, he really epitomized that phrase, and, um, continue to do so uh, in, in the league, especially with having back-to-back thousand-yard seasons to start his career. Um, I just look forward to kind of now seeing it up close and personal, and you know, like I said, uh, taking the energy that he has on the field and mirroring that, just leading this team to you know where we should think we should be. Kenny and Drake joining us. You know, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that extra game. What was your feeling about that? Were you in favor of that extra game? Um, when I looked at the schedule, it, I guess it really didn't kind of make a difference because one, they took away a preseason game, and from last year, I actually will tell you that I became a fan of the preseason games because when we played that first game against the 49ers last year, uh, when I tell you I was the sorest I'd ever been, like coming off of a game, and it was just because we had never banged or did anything up to that point. So I feel like a preseason game is definitely a, a 
a big thing for especially professional athletes and you know in that respect um but i think from an overall standpoint it's the same number of games and then we have an extra home game and um as you may know arizona or nevada is a um a free tax income state so i mean it kind of works in my favor in, in, that, that. in that respect as well so yeah. you know you got to think of the business side of it I, I, I'm just laughing. That's yeah. I'm well aware of that fact that they are a non-state income tax place, and that does factor in when you get those kind of paychecks. So it kind of makes me chuckle. But yes, I see it working. So back in October, you had that 69-yard TD run against the Cowboys, where you hit 22.11 miles per hour. Raheem Mostert was the only back to run faster than that last year. You made the quote, or made the point, quote. The plays where you feel like you're not running that hard, you're actually running the fastest. I think that's really interesting. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's something that I learned when I started running track in high school. Um, they used to kind of make a make it a point that if you're fast, you're going to run fast, but you don't have to run harder to run faster. You run smoother, and um, it, I feel like that's it. It, it kind of becomes more of a a case of you know when you're seeing somebody really trying to run hard. You know, if they're trying to catch somebody that's fast, and they're just you know running the, the pace that they need to do. I, I just feel like it won't, it won't necessarily work out in their favor because it's just you're straining, you're not really running loose. And that's something, like I said, that I learned uh, from running track. So when I, when, I, when I had that play and, you know, I, you know, I kind of broke out, I, I kind of opened my stride up, lifted my knees up, you know, you know, not necessarily trying to run harder or run faster in general, but after the play, you know, they said I ran 22 over 22 miles an hour. And it was just like, at first I was surprised and I was like, you know what? If I felt like it felt like I was, but it didn't at the same time. But it kind of comes back to that, that sentiment that you don't have to run harder to run faster. Smooth is fast, right? Kenyon Drake joining us. So when you go to Vegas, it means that you'll play with Derek Carr. That's somebody who's been criticized in the past, but I know you've got a lot of respect for him and the way he approaches the game. What are people missing about Derek and his approach to the game? Um, he's an over-communicator, and I mean that in a, a highly respectable way just because he puts everybody in a position to be in before the play happens. Like, And that's the most important thing in a quarterback is obviously the plays that you make before or after the whistle, but the plays that you make before is you know putting people in a position, uh, getting a mic check uh, correct, depending on if he you know, smells a blitz. Um you know, audible in the run play uh, away from, you know, maybe if the safety is down. Uh, he just has a, a good ability, obviously, being in his offense and being recruited for the last few years. Uh, just uh, a real cerebralness about him that, you know, there would never be necessarily a quote-unquote bad play. Now, obviously, the defense gets paid to, you know, make plays against us, and, you know, they'll do that sometimes. But it won't because it won't be to the fact that, you know, they tricked him. Like he has just this knack of being able to put us in the best play possible. And if they make a play, they make a play. But it's not because you know we ran against a bad look. Kenny Drake, my guest. All right, one last thought before I let you go, because there's no way I can let you go and not ask you about your dogs, Maxine and Tyson. <laughs> the combo is so famous right now. They've got a bobblehead. How are they doing? Uh, they're doing great. Um, I'm currently in Atlanta right now, seeing family. Um, but they're back in uh, Arizona at the border. Can't wait to see them uh, next couple of days when I get back over the weekend. But they're they're doing great. Um, I, I know they uh, 
looking forward to making a trip up north uh, to Vegas. I guess it won't be much of a difference in terms of uh, weather-wise. They're, they both were born in Florida, so um, they're more of a, a humidity type of breed. But uh, they, they've gotten used to it, so I know they look forward to the, the change of scenery. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. For those who do not know, what kind of dogs are they? Um, so Maxine is a multi-poo, and then Tyson is actually her son that's mixed with a schnauzer. So they're both white, and, uh, yeah, they're just two little dogs that kind of, you know, get on my nerves sometimes. But you know, what, what I'm going to do with them, I love them. That's fun. He's a running back for the Vegas Raiders. They signed, or he signed in March, and a great opportunity for Kenyon Drake. Kenyon, great to have you on. Appreciate you. Always good to hear your voice on the show, man. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Thanks for always having me on. Always enjoy talking with you. The UFC's most famous big bro is walking back into the octagon for the first time in over six years. That's right. It is official. All those strip chat workouts are going to be put to good use as Nick Bleeping Diaz has agreed to run it back with former UFC welterweight champ Robbie Lawler. One more time. Hell freaking yes. Just when I got all hyped up on the possibility of Nick Diaz actually fighting again, it seemed like it just got ripped from us. You know that whole thing about if something seems too good to be true, it always is? That was this, because there was some buzz and some noise that Nick might fight again. And then it looked like, yeah, that's not going to happen. But come to find out, big bro Nick, he does want to give somebody the hands for the first time in six years. It's almost like he said, hey man, don't sweat it. It's almost like he personally pulled me aside and said to me and the rest of the world, this is not over. This is not over. This is not over. This is not over. Like, I'm Nick bleeping Diaz. I will fight when I want to fight and only on my timeline. And my timeline is every six years. So here we are. Here the bleep we are. Here we are. Here the f*** we are. And we will once again get to see Nick Diaz. And the Nick Diaz army. And he has an army. And Robbie Lawler exchanged fists to each other's faces on September 25th at UFC 266. Fists, kicks, chokes, you name it. These two dudes will be delivering it for five rounds. And yes, because he is a Diaz, you knew it would be a five-round fight. And no, the scrap is not technically the main event on the card, but because he's a Diaz, he gets 25 minutes. Because he wants 25 minutes. And because he's a Diaz, we all know it really is the main event of the card. Even if there are bouts after it. There are no fights like a Diaz fight, yo. Like even Nate, little brother Nate said it. Like all my fights are championship fights. Even if I'm not fighting for a belt, the fact that I'm fighting makes it a championship fight. And he's right. I love this matchup too, by the way. I I don't love just that Nick is coming back. I love the matchup. And yes, Lawler is on a losing streak of late. But he's still one of the most exciting fighters that there is. Lawler always brings heat. And he's been a part of some incredible, legendary brawls. Legendary brawls. A guy who will stand in and exchange. And you know something about a Diaz bro, right? You know what they're about, Nick and Nate. Man, they're about standing in and fighting and talking bleep while they're doing it. Nick will talk bleep for sure. I don't know if Robbie Lawler will, but I know Nick will. If you remember, 
which I'm sure most of you don't. It's been a minute or two since the two of these guys exchanged fists. They actually did it way the hell back at UFC 47 in 2004. But man, it was fireworks, yo. Yo. When Nick iced him. Ice. And for all of you who are wondering, what does Nick have left? The guy's been away for six years. What does he have left? And what about ring rust? Is that a real thing? I'm telling you, I think he's got something left because he's always training. And the guy they're putting him in against is a perfect matchup for him. So I'm not going to question Nick Diaz at all. I think he'll be there. I think he'll be ready. I think he's got a lot left because he's a Diaz. These guys have been fighting for money and for free their entire lives. Literally. In the cage, in training, on the street, wherever. You know he'll be in shape because he's absolutely obsessed like little bro in the triathlon life. See, what it comes down to with these dudes, these dudes fight, they work out, and they smoke weed. It's essentially what they do, and they make money. But that's their brand, right? Their brand is those three things, and they're willing and always ready to do all three things any place, any time. Nick is always in shape like Nate is always in shape. And remember, Nate took that first fight with Connor on 11 days' notice, and he won. So I've got one more take on this. Not only do I think it's amazing that Nick is going to fight, and I do not want to get greedy, and the last thing I ever want to do is have him look ahead. But let's for a minute go ahead and look ahead, right? Yes, one fight at a time. Yes, it's been six years. But what if this is a setup for something else? What if it's a setup for something bigger? What if he's doing this? And keep in mind, with Nick, you don't know. It's like it's not like he's doing it for the money. He hasn't fought in six years. That's not what that is. What if he's doing it for this reason, though? What if it's not necessarily or exclusively about Lawler, but the possibility of getting in the cage with my dude, Jorge Masvidal? Ah, you see me working. What if he's doing it because ultimately he's coming for game bread and the BMF belt, the belt that Jorge ripped from little bro? Remember how that went down? Remember how big bro was not at all happy with how that went down? Remember? I do. And why do I think this is a possibility? I remember what he told Ariel Helwani. After the battle for the title, a baddest mother bleeper went down. Remember what Nick said? Like, that's, like, the BMF, the 107, like, that's my belt. <laughs> but I'm not going to get in my brother's way of taking it. You know what I mean? I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, that's my belt. Uh, I'm like, you just fought my baby brother. And then I got to watch him taking, like, you know, foot to the face. Like, I, you know, that was a hard time. She asked me about a thing about the stoppage. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's a good stoppage because my brother. But should you stop the fight? No. Who knows the last two rounds could be on the ground? No. Who knows the last two rounds when he got hit? I don't know. Whatever. Because all I see is dollar signs right now. It's not on me. You want to talk about baptizing my younger brother? That's on you. I never had nothing disrespectful to say, but like you don't you don't talk about baptizing my younger brother. So you're already in a position if you fight with me you don't talk about baptizing someone's younger brother that's my baby brother 
You don't talk like that to nobody. Man, I'm only coming forward because I've been summoned for the most part. By who? The whole MMA the game? Fan, fan base demographic and my younger brother because, you know. See, either you get these guys or you don't, but I don't know how you wouldn't get these guys. That, that is one of my favorite rants. That is so great. So just to break that down really quickly, they fought for the BMF belt, baddest mother bleeper, Nate and Jorge. Nick started that off by saying, by the way, the belt's mine. All right, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. But if my little brother is going to fight for it, that's cool. But did you see how emotional he got when he responded? Because Jorge was saying things like, I'm going to baptize this guy. I'm going to baptize this guy. And Nick's saying, hey, man, don't you talk about baptizing my little brother, man. That's my little brother now. Brother. Not that Nate isn't one of the baddest mothers who ever lived. It's just some brotherly love, man. Like, I love it. I love that. Brother. So what I'm saying to you is, I've got no inside information. I'm kind of talking out my backside. I'm just being very transparent. This is what I want to see happen. And I don't know that it will. And this is coming from a guy who loves Jorge Masvidal. I'm just saying, Nick coming back is great news. But if he's coming back to not only fight Lawler, but maybe if he were to win that fight and parlay that into a fight with Jorge... To get back the BMF belt and his brother's honor, which he never lost, but he thinks that Jorge said some terrible things about him. How good would that be? That would be like some of the best news ever. And then that might end the debate as to who, in fact, is harder, a West Coast gangster or an East Coast gangster. Jorge Masvidal had a good last fight. Good last fight. All respect to the man. But there ain't no gangsters in this game anymore. There ain't nobody who does it right but me and him. So I know my man's a gangster, but he ain't no West Coast gangster. You know what I'm saying? I love that. Quote, there are no gangsters in this game anymore, except just us. And I know he's got some gangster in him, but quote, he ain't no West Coast gangster. We need to run that back, don't we? Like, who's the baddest of them all? The East Coast gangster or the West Coast gangster? Little bro. Nate, my man, I love you, dude. With all due respect, there is now a third gangster back in the game. The leader of the Nick Diaz army himself. And instead of him sending you to the park, this time he has summoned himself to the cage. I think that is such great news. I love it. But again, like I said, either you get those guys or you don't. I love the Diaz bros. Love them. John Anik and I had a conversation yesterday, which I taped today, and we didn't get... That was not official when I had the conversation with him, but we did talk about Nick. And he has history with the Diaz's. That's really interesting, too. Matt in L.A. What's going on, Matt? Romy Cron, hey. Thanks for the vine. Kind of like Golden Corral workers catering to our dude beats every day of the week. Wanted to officially welcome you back, Pimp. How was Wisconsin? <laughs> That's a question. And now we're done. I don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. I think somebody yesterday said, Good night, no! 